Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Suggested Donation Podcast. I wanted to quickly mention that the podcast will be recording live at the Figurative Art Convention and Expo at the Biltmore Hotel in Miami, Florida, November 7th through the 10th. I'm not exactly sure what day we'll record yet, but we'll be there and we're probably going to do multiple recordings. But as far as like our event, I'm not quite sure yet, but sometime between the 7th and the 10th at the Biltmore Hotel in Miami, we'll be recording live and we want you all in the audience. So please come. Love to meet you all. Should be a really great time. The lineup this year is killer. So come and uh, join us there. Go to figurativeartconvention.com to get more information. Also, I wanted to thank Treckle Brushes and Art Supply for sponsoring this episode. Uh, They're a great company. They're super artist-friendly. I use their brushes. They're fantastic brushes. And... Everybody over there at Treckle are beautiful, wonderful, awesome people. So thank you, Treckle. Uh, so go to treckle.com and uh, get yourself some brushes there. They're great. Um, anyway, thank you again. It means a lot to us. We love doing the podcast. And uh, with your support, we're going to continue to do it. So anyway, enjoy the episode. Uh, it's a good one. And we'll see you all soon. Suggested donation. donation. Was that Jacob Collins? Or is it someone else? He might have. I know that that's something he talks about or right. thinks about. I think it might have been Jacob, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think he was... He. I, I recall the stuff that he was talking about regarding photography uh in my recollection was more about like an aesthetic that came out of photography right. that became like adopted by painters yeah. as kind of and and I think we I mean we continue to kind of think of photographic truth as truth as opposed to I was actually thinking about this this morning that like those Michelangelo drawings are incredibly true. They're incredibly human. And you would never say, oh, maybe he was working from photographs. Even if he had cameras at the time. Right. Looking at those drawings, they have nothing to do with... He's looking for something different. And if you think about... Um, I mean, drawing in general, like a line, mm-hmm. is a total... It doesn't exist in photographs. It doesn't right. exist in nature. It's something... It's an abstraction that artists came up with mm-hmm. as a, a way to represent the the world that we inhabit. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating how far removed line is from anything mm-hmm. real or anything photo- photographic. Uh, are we, are we, is this, are we recording right now? We're, I mean, we, we, yeah, well, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, c- um, because <laughs> I wanted to know if I should be like wordy or efficient in responding. Because um, there, uh, I've read like two phenomenal analyses of um, the history of line and art, and one of them was um, Harold Speed's book on drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you? The Practice and Science of Drawing? Yeah. We've never had Harold Speed on the podcast. If that's what <laughs> you guys just aren't. You're not serious podcasters. No, I mean, he just, he canceled a few times. Right. Apparently, he's been ill for a while. Right. Um, did you read uh, his, um, he talks about, uh, 
like the intuitive nature of the line as a visual uh, simulacrum of um, the boundary of touch. Like he sees all of visual art as a um, standing in for touch. Uh, and so he says everybody starts with the outline because they are using drawing to represent uh, uh, touching. Like feeling your yeah. way around this. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was great. Um, and then um, there's a really fantastic book on um, the neurobiology of sight and art uh, by Margaret Livingstone, who's a, a neuroscientist at Harvard, I think. And she talks about um, uh, how sight is constructed and that uh, even though there is no line in nature, uh, neurons, uh, hum- like the human um, visual system is designed to accentuate contrast along edges so that the brain constructs a line. Like the line does exist in the brain, even though it doesn't exist in nature, because we are programmed to find the line and, uh, and, and highlight it. That's fascinating. Isn't so it? then like line almost exists in the mind and not like the, the photograph reveals kind of the, I don't know, the, the nature of the mechanism that's taking the photograph versus human perception, which it, is very different. And yes, and uh, her, her like her description is completely consistent with speed because uh, from a survival perspective, you're trying to replicate uh, the boundaries of touch, so you're not bumping into things, and you know or where everything is in your some poisonous snake. Yeah, um, but uh, but so like the cognitive process itself produces the outline, and then uh, artwork replicates that. That's interesting. I've, I mean, I've always thought about the relationship between sculpture and drawing, mm-hmm. and in particular, like uh, you know, with Michelangelo. But right. I, I mean, with with all drawing, I I think of it as sculptural, as like feeling your way, like yes. you're describing around. Like the, the form. eye feels its way over the surface. Yeah, it's yeah. funny though. I never thought of it as a survival mechanism, or I never thought about it in that context. That's fascinating. Yeah, I don't I I don't know how you would demonstrate that empirically, but like. <laughs> you know, it, when you reduce any human trait to a survival mechanism, you're like, oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's logical, <laughs> it I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's true, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, um, but uh, that's a fantastic book on. Uh, What's on the, the name of that book side. again? Uh, I think it's called um, "Vision and Art: How We See" or something like that, uh, by Margaret Livingstone. Um, Livingstone. Yeah, it's beautifully illustrated with examples um and she you know i don't think she really presses the point but she talks about um impressionism a lot and how it produces uh one sense of atmospheric space uh by uh the uh, especially pointillism um uh, pointillism you said pointillism yeah uh it uh by generating false matches between different points in the picture your eyes constantly playing over the surface and trying to match two points seen by the two eyes to one and it produces a sense of three-dimensional space what she doesn't hammer is that by downplaying the outline it's in a sense anti-cognitive they thought it was scientific but um pointillism or impressionism impressionism overall uh you know well i've always thought of impressionism as as a reaction to the process of photography in that light reveals Mm -hmm. the image right that's what photography is light is Mm-hmm. reflecting onto a plate right and uh impressionism is essentially viewing light as the subject re- or light revealing all subjects and light ultimately is the subject right of impressionism and so it 
it always struck me that it's not a coincidence that you get impressionism around the time that you get widespread use of of photography, not to copy paintings, but just use of photography to capture photographs. That makes sense. Uh, the um, I like the thing though. I, I, it's not a dismissal of impressionism as an aesthetic, but it has an ambition to be more modern and scientific in its mode of depiction of reality. But I think that what they're trying to do is depict reality unfiltered by the human eye. They think that what they're trying to do is uh, depict it unfiltered by artistic artifice, but they didn't recognize yet because the machinery wasn't available that the artifice itself represents uh, a sort of a synthesis of different human cognitive traits. So they're trying to uh, generate an image of unmediated reality. Uh, which produces fascinating results, but it's not exactly what they thought they were accomplishing. So. <laughs> it's well, you, not exactly. Well, you see that in post-impressionism, where it kind of I feel falls apart pretty mm-hmm. quickly as mm-hmm. soon as they leave the the beginnings of impressionism, um, that foundation. Mm-hmm. As soon as they, um, when the artist started copying what they thought you were supposed to do, right? As a result. I feel like their results are far less uh, convincing and um, interesting too. Right. That book you were talking about, that author, uh, it was a uh, Livingstone. Livingstone. Yeah. Is, is she? You said it was a, a female. Yes. What's her first name? Yes. Margaret. And does yeah. she paint? No. Uh, she does a lot of um, tests on macaques. Um, huh. Yeah. On what? Macaques. Really? Uh, she does. She does like um. She uh, really fascinating stuff with perception of faces by uh, macaques, and uh, she. Uh, Where does she do that? Like at a like Harvard, and really? they yeah, and they they feed them cherry juice for rewards. Do they get I wrote them to from her like? This. Does she go out to like? The jungle? Or? I don't know where she gets her macaques from. <laughs> I wonder what. That's really odd. Yeah, and I, but I, I, I had a few questions after I read her book, and I emailed her. Um, and I, I was also like, "How are you getting these results?" And she was like, "You know, we have like these macaques wired up to brain scan oh, things, no. and, and you know, we we reward them with cherry juice." And I was like, "It looks like." a tedious process for the mechanic and she was like they fall asleep a lot while, while we're running these tests <laughs> like oh god we gotta look at more impressionism yeah just give me but they, cherry, they, they give have me like a face high. region in their in their brain uh which humans have as well like there's like a specific hardware in the brain for recognizing faces uh it's why uh like uh, this and book that's was the thing that uh chuck close doesn't have right doesn't have i don't know what the how he has prosopagnosia yeah and i don't know how that relates to that particular structure but i would imagine that is it the frontal right. cortex that's is, is it located i, I th- don't know where because that's usually also one of the the well maybe it wouldn't make sense because it's usually one one of the areas of the brain that's um that that matures later hmm it would have to mature quite early because babies. That's are, what I would think. Yeah, but at the same time, you're always talking about like babies, and, like they're they're very insignificant frontal cortex not really <laughs> right. <been> developed yet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I mean, I would imagine that it's in the visual cortex, but I don't know where the visual cortex is. Yeah, yeah. I don't either. Yeah. Should we know that? For artists, we should know. <laughs> <Yeah. that. laughs> where to not hit your head on the ground? When you're yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ouchie. Yeah. Well, you know what? Now's a good time to uh, bring up the fact that this is Suggested Donation Podcast. I'm Edward Minoff. And I'm Tony Surinai. And we are here joined by Daniel Maidman in his studio in, uh, uh, 
Where Green, are we? Greenpoint, Green Brooklyn. Greenpoint, Green Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> and I am thrilled to have you here. I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I have spent many happy hours here listening to it. <laughs> awesome. Oh, thanks. That's well, thanks for being on and inviting us into your uh, decadently large studio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As you can tell from the sound quality, this studio is tiny. Yeah. It's probably a perfect recording space, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'd probably be pretty like good. Like a lot of absorbent materials. Yeah, yeah. If I was able to like set here. everything up well here on the... Uh, computer but i'm pretty sure we're pretty good <laughs> awesome so daniel uh, i met you a while back and yeah. at the um up in connecticut is that the first time i met you or did I, I might have met you in the city at like random openings and yeah stuff like that. but the first time we really hung out was uh up in connecticut at new, at britain. new britain yeah and that was a really fun time that and i want to get into that were you guys on a panel together is yeah that- yeah and uh we they had just accessioned uh work from both of us into yeah. their uh Permanent short-lived collection. post contemporary yeah why is it short oh did they they, not? they changed directors um, <clears throat> did they get rid of the i mean they still have the art i think right? they still have the mm-hmm. art they i mean yes the yeah museum one of my will, paintings there too yeah the museums will they'll keep the paintings yeah. but um it's just i i, I mean mine's it, so valuable they might sell it just, yeah <laughs> I just, as long as it's climate controlled and there it has options for later in history exactly i don't care if it's on the wall yeah yeah well the idea be nice if it was on the wall it'd be nice yeah i mean you want to be able to send people i i I think that something lacking in representational art Mm -hmm. is is kind of public venues for people to appreciate it and i mean you do have like an odd near drum at the metropolitan which is nice but Mm -hmm. it's in a sea of stuff that's is it i find uninteresting where is it it's in the, uh, there's like a contemporary wing. I, I mean, they, they may have moved things around because uh-huh. of the Met Brewer, but uh, there was that contemporary wing where they had like the Damien Hurst shark for a while. Oh, okay. And if you went past that just a little bit downstairs, I think there was uh, a mezzanine with uh, with a... a Odd near drum self-portrait. I'll tell you what, I never once went in there because I don't think the... Met's specialization is contemporary. Yeah, so. I, the, somebody needs to tell the Met that though. Yeah. <laughs> well, they I mean, really that's a real want, problem. Yeah, because they want to be a player. And and I don't. I feel like the city has like the best contemporary museums I'm aware of anywhere. And the Met has a completely different set of strengths and that they don't appreciate because they're so good at it. And they're like, well, we're not cool enough. And they keep on screwing around with contemporary stuff. And they're not as qualified as every single other museum in the city. But I think, you know, that also gets into a different, like the fundraising system. Mm -hmm. um, You know, if if I were trying to raise money for a show for some, for, I don't know, for like, let's say late Warhol, I think I'd have a lot of support. And a a museum that's going to do that is going to get a lot of big money people behind it because that's a really active market. I mean, you look at the Da Vinci painting that sold Uh and the number was staggering, but that's not going to happen again for another hundred years. So that's not an active market. It's a remarkable thing. And I, I'm glad that it was appreciated and people can debate whether or not it's a legitimate so many people or not. would disagree with you but that it was all an act of marketing. On it was one. no, no, it, an act of marketing, but not an active market. Oh, an active market. Okay. Yeah. It's not, it's not actually and an ongoing you, market. That guy who found it is, was, was on, Robert, Robert Simon. Simon yes. Who was and on a suggested donation. Yes. Right? That was you a heard fascinating it here first. episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we got that story three, two or three years ago. Which I take it personally some of the um the comments about it not being a real leonardo i mean i I read some things that were so like yeah it you can debate a lot about that painting Mm -hmm. uh but i I found some of the criticisms to be just like unbelievably impulsive and uninformed 
Okay. And and by people who seemed to be informed. I'm not going to go into it, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but go uh, into it anyway. But getting back names. to the museums, <laughs> names where it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Name names. Um, but getting back to the the museums, I think the Metropolitan mm-hmm. uh, ran into a snag a couple of years ago, maybe a few years ago, where they were having trouble raising money, and mm-hmm. you know. The real money that museums get is from donors. It's right. not. It's from you know the wealthiest people in the, yeah, in the yeah, country. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, those people are the MoMA's doing great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney's doing great. Mm-hmm. And the Met really wasn't, even though traffic at the Met was way up. So mm-hmm. the Met was getting uh, more visitors right. than ever before, but they weren't getting. They weren't able to convert that into fundraising success i was not aware of that was that i think that that's part of their turn towards more contemporary art is Mm -hmm. just to try and tap into a an active market i mean i'm surmising i haven't spoken to anybody there but yet the nor would they admit it if that was true but the met gala is one of the biggest events not only in new york but it's across the country people know about the met gala you know when they have the big fashion thing it's like the oscars almost fair enough but they're just not they're like their fundraising targets i think have been off and the moment i I, there was a there was a series of articles in the new york times about it uh not that long ago and it was interesting because i found the headlines to be very misleading and that Mm -hmm. the headlines were all about how the fundraising was you know was was not doing well but uh at the same time if you read into the article people are going to the met like it's more crowded than it's ever been it's very crowded and so it's it's they're successful in getting people in and the tone of the article started out you know or series of articles how how is the met going to lure more people in but Mm -hmm. that's not the problem right they need to lure deeper pockets to get behind what they're doing right uh, and and I I would assume that that's their well they're going to change it their policy their suggested donation policy <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first suggested <laughs> donation which is I it, it, you it, should change the podcast to mandatory donation mandatory <laughs> donation in honor of the metropolitan you've earned it yeah it's time <laughs> so the uh, so I guess but the, for outer towners New Yorkers for outer can listen now. to it yeah for outer towners <laughs> they get the secret gonna, iTunes code <laughs> there's now going to be a feed yeah. get in for yeah. outer towners mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, I but mean, there already is for MoMA and Whitney. Yeah. I, I thought the MoMA and Whitney had, like, even if you're from town, you still have to pay. Yeah. 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 You do. So yeah. it's pay all the time. But any artists listening, MoMA has a fantastic artist membership rate. So they also, don't yeah. they have like a pay what you want night or something? It's like a Thursday do. night. At least when yeah. I was growing up, it was like a Thursday night or something. Yeah. Like Everybody that. has a pay what you want, like four to five hour block. I think that <laughs> needs, that has to be a necessity to every single museum because you can't, yeah. like, you have to have that for it's, a lot of people. can't a madhouse do it. when you go in. I, it is, and it's yeah. insane. Yeah. So back to what you were saying about the uh the met Uh like that's not your wheelhouse there you have other museums who do it so so well you see it in the galleries in new york too right like there was a certain amount of galleries very small amount who specialized in this one little thing Mm -hmm. and i just feel like they wanted to be part of like you know whatever the cool crowd or the crowd that was getting the attention in the in the you know the contemporary magazines and we saw so many galleries leaving the idea of being like the one little oasis for something mm-hmm. you know and let's say in this case like something which might be realism or representationalism or whatever the word is right and then they switched over to a different pursuit which is 
like every other gallery in mm -hmm. Chelsea. And to me, the specialized gallery became lost in, yeah. in, in the crowd and ceased to be special. And also, in, I mean, in order to do contemporary well, you have to have an extraordinarily refined sense of taste. Like, I'm not going to argue that all contemporary is good or bad. There's there is good and bad stuff out there, but it takes a long time to figure out how to see the difference. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can consistently present the good stuff, then uh, then you really have something special in a contemporary oriented gallery and a lot of the um, galleries that you're talking about that decided to try to become more hip uh, didn't have that critical eye. I and, feel they failed. Yeah. Do you find all like inspiration in all different kinds of like art? I don't look at all that much um, conceptual or minimal or uh, like what they call zombie abstraction or zombie formalism. Mm -hmm. But I try to look at some of everything and I have made a conscious point not to um, doctrinally reject anything over the past Just out of, of like a commitment to open-mindedness? Yeah, and I, I just felt like I was like making my world arbitrarily too small that I might be missing something. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it, 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 it ends up with a lot of times I'll go to Chelsea and like come away fuming. But <laughs> I just, I feel like... Um, I also find a few things here and there that are amazing that I would never have seen. Like, what are some examples of, of things that maybe people who listen to this podcast might be sort of interested if they actually saw, but sure. would be unlikely to actually go look at? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, there was a, uh, and you're going to have to look this up and find a link for it because I can't remember the names of the guys. But there was an installation at the Marlboro Chelsea Gallery a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, of these two guys who I think are from Los Angeles. Uh, and it was, um, it had the word Straylight in the name. And it was based quite clearly on cyberpunk. Um, and it was like a three story installation wedged into the Marlboro Chelsea space. And uh, it was sort of the detritus of uh, vanished 80s and 90s versions of the future. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely spellbinding. Uh, it, uh, incredibly detailed. A DeLorean? <laughs> no, no DeLorean. Was it kind of like Philip K. Dick? It was like Dick, Gibson, yeah. um, uh, a few like 60s writers. Hein, what's it? Um, I, I'm brain farting right now. Hein. Heinlein? Yeah, I no, can't remember but, but, <laughs> but no, it's like it was no future that was that clean. It was all of the like slightly disheveled dystopias. So very yeah. much more in the Philip K. Dick, William Gibson line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, they took an, they took a word from Gibson for the name of the show. And uh, and you just felt like you were entering another universe. Uh, it was incredible. Um, and so that show made a huge impression on me. And if I hadn't wandered into Chelsea that day, I would never have seen it. Um, I've never seen anybody uh, with that fascinating a take on William Gibson in any other medium. Mm. Um, and Gibson has these descriptions of these infinitely detailed uh, micro worlds uh, that are created by people with unlimited resources and uh, obsessiveness. And they basically executed that. So something that's hinted at in Gibson is actually like made uh, palpable in this show. And mm. that's that you know that's that's a very short term installation it doesn't exist anymore the materials were not archival uh it was just something that was almost like a theatrical performance yeah and that was amazing uh so that's something that uh that completely blew me away i kind of like orozco stuff uh like it's like very funny um so 
that's <laughs> yeah my wife thinks that art should be funny um and i don't um, why does she think art should be funny she's just like you know when people try to be great they often are boring but when they try to be funny they're frequently funny um and she's like and who doesn't like to laugh um so i i've become more open to funny artwork uh as a result of um of talking with her about art and uh and so when i was looking you know we watch um art 21 sometimes we forgot what season we were in so we stopped watching it because yeah. we didn't want to watch it a second <laughs> time but like she's like this is perfect for putting me to sleep it's like it's a weird like mix of fascinating and totally boring um and uh but we've like you know seen a lot of art that we wouldn't have seen otherwise and i think they had one on orozco and i was like this is pretty cool you know um, what bugs so. me sometimes about the funny thing and, and i think it's interesting but mm-hmm. so much of it becomes when somebody wants to be funny they become ironic mm-hmm. and then what they end up doing is talking down to you the viewer and calling you an idiot well there's there, so much of it is it's also is a lack that. of commitment like you right. know you to, in order to really be funny you have to commit to failing just as hard as if you want to be uh like if you want to express any other genuine emotion and irony is a rejection of any form of genuine expression a sort of a preemptive declaration of failure uh, and that makes yeah. it really frustrating um right it's I easy to ulti- knock things down and criticize it's yeah. hard to stand for something or, or yeah. try and yeah yeah and also it makes you finite like you can't be everything you can reject everything but you cannot be everything so in order to make sincere artwork you have to define what you aren't um and that like involves acknowledging that you're gonna die and you don't have enough time to do everything um so it's very <laughs> difficult for especially i think artists in their 20s to recognize that um that that there are only so many things they can do well. Yeah. Yeah. That you have to, yeah, exactly yeah. commit yourself to something that right. you can do well or that and, you're... And you might wind up, you could take 20 years and be on the wrong track. I did that. Um, I was a filmmaker before I was a, a painter. And, oh, right. You really? went to film school. I right? went to film school so and I made I. films and you did? Yeah. Where did you go? I went to Tisch, NYU Film School. How's your student loan load? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I made, uh-huh. I mean, I, I started an animation company after school. Really? And I was doing animation for... Oh, wait, I knew that. Yeah, and then... You had... Um, if you listen to the podcast... Yeah, I know, know I know. I, it's, but it's a few years ago now. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, but you had Will something on, the uh, claymation guy, right? Um, crap. Uh, California Raisins, did you have that guy on? No, oh, no we had Bill no, Plimpton. Plimpton. You had Bill Plimpton. Yeah. yeah. Yes. He's amazing. Bill. Yeah. yeah. Great. I used to see his stuff at uh like animation festivals in Toronto when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There yeah. was a big one in Toronto. That, yeah. yeah. And like and, and the, you'd have like was the big one. The which one? The Ottawa. Oh, that's right. Ottawa. Oh, I was never up there for yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I have you been to the National Gallery in, in Ottawa? I have not. Is it good? Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, they, like every time I go into an art museum and they have a Klimt that I know, I get excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there aren't that many Klimts that you know. So like, you're like, oh, that's here. That's <laughs> like, that one. Ottawa's got one of those. Yeah. So you grew up in Canada, went to film school, and then you were making films. Yeah, not very well or successfully. What um, kind of films were you making? Films were like you? science fiction shorts, but you know, Ooh. like underfunded, badly written science fiction shorts <laughs> that no one wanted to see. Um, so I did that. I like I basically worked on being a filmmaker from uh, age thirteen to thirty-five uh, before being like, "This isn't working out." Um, so wait, why wasn't it working or 30? out? Thirty was it just 30? the set? 
something. Was it the satisfaction of it? Like no, oh, I wasn't. I, or was it like a monetary thing? Or was it like a like there was the, no help coming? Like oh, there were okay. there was there were uh, there were a lot of factors involved. Um, one of them was uh, I was interested in Tarkovsky, who is not really uh, a commercially applicable filmmaker <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. Uh, a second is that I. Uh, was refused to start at the bottom, so I wouldn't wasn't crewing on films and getting to know people. A third was that the social networks in Los Angeles, uh, at least pre-internet, I haven't tried this in a long time, were very complicated and difficult to decode. Mm. So I never knew who to meet. Uh, I didn't know how to meet them, and I didn't know what to say. Uh, and so I just, you know, I was making shorts essentially for my own amusement at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't practicing enough to get better at it. I had a decent amount of background in theater, film, and art, but I was not practicing enough to integrate those things into something really successful. And I think with film, uh, there's so little practice historically uh, in film uh, that, you know, it's astonishing to think that people like, um, you know, Tarkovsky or Orson Welles or anybody like that are making masterpieces two or three films in. And that is... um, that's an un- it it means that there's a huge selection bias in film towards people who are able to make aesthetically uh complete products early uh and if you look at painting a lot of people kind of suck at painting for many years for before they get time. good at it yeah. because yeah. making paintings is cheap yeah. um and making films is expensive so you're selecting towards people who can shoot a masterpiece the second time out and par- and hopefully the first well yeah. they need the returns right away to prove yeah. to kind of prove the whole idea of why we're even Yes. in this thing painting yeah. is also not necessarily like a social activity whereas filmmaking almost yeah. necessarily is like that, you can't i make didn't a have film a problem with yourself. that i love being on set oh really yeah and, i love be i love talk like coordinating a group of people oh, i'm not that. bad at it oh That's my god it's so great Ugh. oh i love it <laughs> i, I love working with people i one of the things that i miss about film is uh that um everybody cracks under pressure uh, and like 14 hours into a shoot, people start cracking mm-hmm. and like you eventually figure out and you feel like everyone cracks differently. And the really great crew members are the ones who like crack and remain productive. And then you start forming these like really profound bonds with people because you've, you've kind of been through insanity yeah. together. And that's great. Uh, I just, I love that experience and I really miss that. So, yeah. Is there it's any a, way to replicate that? Do you imagine in the studio, like f- maybe with models or something? No, I mean, it's not, it's just not like you're not going to paint for 14 hours in a row with a model because they'll fall over uh, well they'll crack they'll, well they'll crack but it will not be productive <laughs> unless you're doing like model sleep in studio yeah even though in that world i know there's a um, a large amount of oh i've worked with this person mm-hmm. a bunch right there's so much of i worked with that person once right and we went through that yes it's like almost like going into this level of insanity mm-hmm. wh- whether it was like time and then see you later and never see them again it's true and it's a weird like nice to know you and it's just gone they're like family and then you never see them never see them again yeah so how and why did you switch over to painting i mean what like was that something that you had always loved or cared about or is it i I, had um i hadn't taken it seriously as something to do with my life um but i was i had a lot of free time in los angeles uh so i was drawing and painting a lot Mm -hmm. uh just just, just on your own. Just on my own. And Which is, you, you're, you are self-taught, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I went to an art high school, um, mm. but pretty much everything that you th- would think of as things that are interesting in my work is self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh and so i just like i finished a really demanding short in 2005 uh so i was 30 when i gave up uh <laughs> and uh I, d- I finished this really demanding short uh it didn't get into sundance and i was like i don't know why i'm deluding myself this is not going to work out um and uh and i just had a complete uh meltdown and after about nine months i came out of it uh and i was like okay i'm a painter and a writer um that's what i'm going to be doing from here on out um and uh i would not object to i it would take a lot of energy to reopen the channel to film um mm-hmm. And uh, unless they came to me with a really good offer, which they aren't doing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll come crawling. Back. Come, yeah, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. Um, so they. Uh, so then that's that's how that happened, and uh, I started taking it seriously, and uh, I started things went re- comparatively quickly and easily uh, with painting, and to a certain extent with writing. What does that mean? Like, like okay. showing, like being professional, or just like learning and and figuring out what you like your voice. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do, and I was doing it. Uh, even though I, I'm not convinced that I'm particularly where I want to be now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm. I still think that I'm that most of my growing as an artist is ahead of me. Um, I feel better about a lot of the technical uh, facets of what I'm doing. But even that I'm not satisfied with. But I was able to make things that people responded to as freestanding, uh, aesthetically satisfying, meaningful art objects uh, in a way that I couldn't do with film. Mm-hmm. I could do it all the time. So I could constantly test and change. And um, by 2009, I was started showing in New York. And... Um, when I came to New York, I started meeting artists pretty quickly. Like the first artist I met here was Adam Miller. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> he was down the hall from a friend of mine in Bushwick, mm-hmm. and he was really nice, and he painted way better than me. <laughs> and I, like, I didn't know any artists in Los Angeles, so I was accustomed to thinking I was pretty good because like, I, you know, I was painting in complete solitude. <laughs> and then I met Adam, and I was like, man, this guy's amazing. <laughs> um, and I met Alexandra. Um, oh, yeah. His, 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 his are now, they married? Or? They're, they're yeah. married. I, yeah, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're married. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and then I started meeting other artists, and so uh, a community came into being. So I was showing, I was hanging out with artists and talking about art. Mm-hmm. I was learning from looking at the artwork that other people were making, and like one of the important things that I was learning was that people were really amazing at it, and there was like room to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, were you avoiding studying like anything with anybody for any particular reason? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Um, I, there was like there were two things that I was worried about. Um, one of them was that I wouldn't learn anything and it would be a huge waste of time. Mm -hmm. And the other one was that I would learn something and I would wind up coming out painting like whoever it was that I had studied with. Right. Because, uh, you know, you can often tell who people studied with. For Um, sure. And I don't, I wasn't convinced that I had a strong enough willpower to self-define in the context of the vision of anyone good enough to actually teach me any techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just avoided all of that. I would be open to it now, but who has time? Well, now you've yeah. like established your identity and yeah. you feel more secure about that at yeah. the time. I mean, you you look at like uh, Rubens copies of Titian mm-hmm. and they're so undeniably Rubens paintings, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. they're, you know, derived from Titian paintings or Sargent's copies of Velasquez. Yeah. Very similar. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, their identities are kind of undeniable. But, yes. Uh, but I've, I've seen a lot... Uh, and, I just, I didn't have the self-confidence that I would wind up 
yeah. being like that. I yeah. see a lot of people who how who go through a long struggle to uh, reestablish their independent identity after studying with a powerful teacher. Yeah, for uh, sure. I mean, I think yeah. that's something we talk about as teachers. Tony mm-hmm. and I both teach, and uh, is that you know if the best way I can teach you is to tell you the way that I know how to go about making a painting or painting something that I see. And if you're going to do that, you know, afterwards, you're going to need a couple of years to figure out who you are because I, you've just kind of, I've maybe passed on what I know, but that's not necessarily, you know, everything that you need to be the artist that you're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that it's, I'm very, I'm, I'm not only am I ambivalent about taking classes, I'm ambivalent about teaching them, mm-hmm. uh, because I worry about, um, uh, you know, getting in the way of the creativity of anybody studying with me. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that if you are really scrupulous about it, you can certainly pass on like a few general principles and then also adapt your teaching to what you're seeing of what your student is doing. Right. So there's like, I would, I, when I have taught things, uh, you know, I'll look at what the student is, uh, is drawing or, and 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 I'll say different things to different students. I won't encourage some students to be technical in a particular way, and I won't encourage other students to be expressive in a certain way. I'll just I'll try to follow the lines of where they are, right, and, and help them uh, and as help individuals. Them. Yeah. I mean, did did you when you were like uh, meeting Alexandra mm-hmm. and Adam? Were you asking them lots of? I mean, oh, yeah. when you're looking at their paintings, are you yeah. like, how? Does I that... actually I got Adam to come over here and show me like how he like does composite color. Uh, so I have like his little study up on the wall over there. Uh, so like the, the only person I've ever talked with in person about painting flesh is Adam. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've you know what? When I was le- first learning to paint flesh, I read twenty nine portrait painting in twenty nine steps by John Howard Sandon, <laughs> 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 and that was like that was my main source of instruction for like the first two years of like painting with a full color palette. When um, you had that decision to switch over from filmmaking to wanting to be a painter, was right? there when you were in the filmmaking part of your journey? Mm-hmm. Was there something in the back of your head that you were like, "I'd love to be a painter." I'd love I would, to be a painter. I have like a really long list of things I would ideally like to do. Uh-huh. Um, and well, I was painting up at the front of it. Meaning what? That was was that the first awesome. thing? No, yeah, yeah. good, good I, answer. But. There, there was all the, I, over time. There have been different things. Like uh, sculpting was really interesting to me at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never sculpted because like I, I cannot uh, be bothered to compile the resources and get it done. Mm-hmm. It looks really tricky, um, and I've got so much that I'm doing that I can't sculpt. Also. Um, I've been interested a little bit in printmaking. Uh, I guess it was like kind of the luck of the draw. Like it's just like very standard. If you're interested in visual arts, you learn to draw and then you learn to paint. Yeah. Uh, so it was like an obvious route. Yeah. Um, so when you yeah. were then, okay, I'm going to do a painting, mm-hmm. uh, being an artist or being a painter is a huge, the gamut of that idea is right. a very big wide net. Right. You seem to want to do right away you want to do something that would be considered representational yeah was there a reasoning for that okay um the so a f- i always wanted to do figurative art uh and i went to my the head of my art program in high school was a very hard abstract expressionist uh and we drove her nuts like my year happened to have exclusive like not exclusively but like an unusual number of, of figurative people <laughs> and she was like I, I can't work with you kids uh and it, it made her crazy um but i always wanted to do the figure 
Um, so when I, w- I started in 1998 in Los Angeles going to life drawing workshops, yeah. uh, and I started going like twice a week. Um, so from 1998 to 2005, I was like life drawing two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. From 2001 onwards, I was also taking canvas pads with, uh, with white and burnt sienna paint, uh, oil paint, and figuring out how to get paint physically onto a canvas. Mm. Um, so that was how I taught myself to paint. Uh, and I did like a lot of really awful, awful stuff. Uh, and just heaps and heaps of it that I would like have drying on the back in the back of my car on the way home. Um, and then a friend of mine uh, was like, I, th- I think that you uh, have a future as a painter. I want to commission your first large painting. And that was in like 2004. Oh, wow. So I did a big painting, like a two foot by four foot nude for him. Uh, and I worked on it really, really hard. Like I spent so much time uh, with the model that, um, you know, was a net loss as a commission, <laughs> yeah. but I did a painting that I liked. Um, and then and you I, knew to, I'm going to hire a model. I'm going to do it this mm-hmm. way yeah. and, and yeah. work from life. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like an extension of a life drawing workshop. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, and then I've been painting ever since and I don't necessarily like a lot of the stuff that I've done, but I've like whatever painting I'm working on right now, I think is the best thing I've ever done. And then in hindsight, I'm like, that one was not good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you put yourself on like a pretty self-directed course of like uh, studying like anatomy. And I mean, you're you're very committed to that. Yeah. I, uh, I talked um, to Santa Monica college and they let me take their gross anatomy course uh, as an art person. And that was usually for medical people mm-hmm. uh so they had two cadavers every semester uh so um uh i was gonna do one semester and uh and draw my own anatomical atlas from dissections and uh then it just kept on like what i wanted to cover kept on expanding like i was just gonna do like musculature and bones to begin with right because that's really the most apropos well, subject that's what, matter yeah that's yeah. what you see on the surface yeah I mean. but then i just wanted to like do the do it right so <laughs> i had to do like the entire body and then the first semester uh uh we had our, our cadavers were bob and betty but it turned out betty was a bob as well so <laughs> i had to like stay for a second semester to like you know do like the unique musculature of the female pelvic floor and oh, yeah. i wasn't nearly done drawing the like hundred drawings that i wanted to do and so i was there for two years and i had a really great uh mentor uh, named uh, dr margarita dell and she just spent endless time with me she gave me permission to like go into the cold room and draw whatever i wanted like there was a list of things they'd already dealt with so i could chop up whatever i wanted that was that the, that the class had already gone through and uh i wound up doing like a complete atlas i really and that was how i that was how i learned to do like back muscles especially which why was very that hard. important to you i wanted to get it right um you just wanted to understand what you were doing i mean what like, i was seeing right yeah. i mean a lot of people i think in that position might have just i don't know just tried to copy photographs more scrupulously <laughs> yeah i i there i just um seems like you like, were committed to li- working yeah. from life and, yeah. and understand kind of approaching it from a, a slightly right. different angle from the start. Curious yeah. about that. Well, I don't like drawing from photographs all that much. Like I I like it more lately um because uh, uh, do you want to talk about drawing for photographs? Yeah, it's sure. a really interesting Absolutely. subject. Yeah. Like you if you like, uh, go on Instagram and look at like 13-year-olds who are drawing uh like from photographs, you can tell they're drawing from photographs because the uh 
they a photograph represents a reduced information set from our actual visual experience and there are very characteristic ways that that gets further reduced when you're drawing from a photograph and you don't know what you're doing uh and i didn't have an explicit sense of that at the beginning but i did have a sort of like an intuitive sense that like drawing from a photograph yielded very bad results uh if you didn't have an enormous background in in observing the real visual field which enables you to look at a photograph recognize what's missing so you're sort of backtracing to reality and then move forward again to your final drawing or painting uh so that that's from a photograph and it's from a photograph i didn't take Mm -hmm. but i feel confident enough uh at this point that i can uh create a freestanding aesthetic object from a photograph uh because i know what i'm looking for and i know what's missing from the photograph, and I know what the artwork needs. Um, But that's one of the more, I think that's probably one of the more advanced uh, skills that you get uh, when you're practicing with representational art. Um, With regard to dissection and learning about anatomy from photographs, it's almost useless because most of the photographs that you're going to see will be uh, preserved cadavers, and the structures in a preserved cadaver look really desiccated and uh and I like the, yeah that's, it's yeah it's like the, yeah, the integrity like of real, the structure has yeah. begun to uh fall apart you can still reconstruct uh the sense and the form when doing it in person but when you look at a photograph it's like completely baffling uh so which is why like uh, anatomy students tend to look these days at 3d models uh but back in the day they looked at netter who was doing oil paintings of cadavers. And so he organized the visual field into discrete structures and he's very informative, but he's quite stylized. Like right. you look at it and you're like, this is super realistic. It's super detailed, but it's not realistic at all. He has, um, you know, preempted the chaos of the actual interior of the body and created something orderly. And then you look at the chaos and you're able to find the landmarks and understand what you're seeing. If you look at a, like a dissection, uh, photograph it's just like it's horrible um, <laughs> it but it's also yeah. it's hard to I mean like you're saying it's mm-hmm. it's chaotic and it's hard to make sense of it yeah. I mean if you have a general sense of muscles and then you look at the skin peeled off a human being mm-hmm. it's not going to look exactly the way that you imagine it to no, right no. like it's it's through the lens of that organizational understanding or comprehension yeah. that you're able to process what you're seeing and make sense of it and then that can ultimately inform your work from life from yeah. people and there also get the, on i there's uh it leads into this um this debate that uh figurative people have about whether a work is uh perceptual or analytic uh so you have like um uh, i don't know um leonard anderson was very much on the perceptual side of things right uh like very like hyper uh focused uh, attention to the visual field and mm-hmm. then uh, creation of the counterpart of that field in uh, in the painting. And then you got like somebody like Sabin Howard who can like derive a body from like first principles. Yeah. Um, and I think that most people actually lie in the middle. Uh, and I know that I do where my, I am very interested in observation of the individual and the reaction to the idiosyncrasies of the individual body uh, and what it's actually doing in front of me in space. But also that's highly informed by like an an understanding of anatomy and dynamics. Um, Well, also it doesn't make sense necessarily without those universals, right? mm -hmm. Like if, if the pelvis doesn't look like a pelvis, right. It's not, 
it doesn't matter if you've got this person's pelvis. It doesn't look like a pelvis, and then the painting is just confusing because yeah. why'd you put a pelvis that doesn't look like a pelvis? Yeah, in it? and like theoretically, you can like be like you can give like the x y coordinates of the highlight of like the iliac crest or something, but uh, if you don't have an understanding in three in like a three dimensional model in your head of what you're looking at. Uh, your sense of the natural stylization forced on you by the medium itself uh, is all wonky and it just doesn't look right. That's and that's part of well, the problem of like people just, yeah, yeah, drawing from photographs. It's right. Like they don't know what they're looking at. They just know the value on chroma of what they're seeing. But you feel like once you've done a lot of studying from life and once you've then it's it's less of a detrimental kind of way of working or oh, it's, yeah it's, I mean, like i i do a decent amount of um of drawing from photographs at this point i like to them to be photographs that i've taken if possible mm -hmm. uh just because i feel like a sense of um ownership of that imagery more mm -hmm. um but uh as long as i maintain a high proportion of life drawing relative to drawing from photographs uh the drawings from photographs have uh, a sense of life that satisfies me mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the drawing as an art object. So does that mean in the process of your making your work that you're kind of using both, that you've got a model posing, you'll take some photographs and then oh, you'll yeah, work so from both together? For instance, together? There, behind you is a, a, a life-size standing nude, uh, which uh, was done from life in six three-hour sessions, which did everything but the face. And then she had to leave town. Uh, so then I, I painted the face from a photograph. Mm -hmm. uh so that's uh that was the process for that um and uh you know i felt pretty good about it mm. <laughs> when did you um start writing because i know when you said uh again back when oh back to, like art, writing about art or writing okay well, so writing in general is it well when you wanted to start writing mm -hmm. did you want to write about art or did you just want to write or it's really want painting well, thank you very much yeah. um uh uh, there, there's, I, I write a bunch of different things. Um, I, uh, I started writing screenplays, so I was writing fiction. I was going to be a writer director. Yeah. Didn't work out. Um, but I wrote a lot of screenplays. Um, and then I never really stopped writing those for years and years. I've, I've worked on screenplays recently. Um, but, uh, after my huge breakdown, uh, that right, I, I stopped really putting much energy into screenplays because i was like what's the point i'm not i'm gonna I'm gonna just shoot these and no one else is gonna shoot them either and this is a sort of uh this is not a complete literary form no one just reads screenplays yeah. um so i started conceptualizing stories in terms of novels um so i've been working on a novel for the past 12 years uh which is actually uh in its final draft right now and mm. I'll be submitting it to agents soon. Uh, and then I started writing art criticism around 2010, I think. I was having really good art conversations with friends, and uh, my friend Jonathan Sword, who's a wonderful painter, uh, was like, you should probably write this down, and then you could write essays, <laughs> and that would, might be useful for you and other people. Uh, so I started a blog, and, uh, and I sort of trained myself to write in such a way that people would want to read it by means of simply writing and seeing how people responded. Mm -hmm. So I practiced that a lot. Uh, and I was writing like 30 or 40 posts a year for the first few years. Um, and then Huffington turned up and asked if I would write for them. 
which was great uh, as long as it lasted. They've just fired all their writers. Really? They fired all their non-paid contributors. Mm. Uh, so it's like down to clickbait on the arts page. Why would you? Wow. Why would you fire people who are unpaid? I, I don't. They have a new CEO, <laughs> and she's like, "Here's my new program. I'm firing everyone. I'm cutting the budget." <laughs> right. I don't know what they're zero up to. Zero to zero. Right. Yeah. yeah. They have like a hundred thousand unpaid bloggers. Um, wow. And they've wow. just they've just terminated all of them. I don't know what Huffington is going to be going forward. I think I everyone who's been there has been like, I don't know what they want to do. But it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to just create a platform for writing. I mean, if you know a, a bunch of writers from who were contributing to that, right? It seems like it'd be easy enough to just buy a domain name and you know just through <laughs> like social media Huffington say, expats. "Hey, we've got." Well, yeah, basically. Right? I mean, it, if. If they weren't paying anything, mm-hmm. you could not pay other people to just to as much write. exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know. It, I feel it, like there's a lot more uh, opportunities for self starter. Like you've built a pretty big platform on on social media mm-hmm. through just posting pretty regularly. Right. I it, to do it as an organized project would require more time and energy than I'm interested in. Right. So I'm very, I'm, I've been, I contribute to other people's projects. Like I'm uh, writing for um, Blue Review, which is Dina Brodsky's site. Yeah. Uh, I write for White Hot, which is Noah Becker's site. Um, uh, I'm writing for Poets and Artists, which oh, cool. Didi Menendez uh, runs. Uh, I've written a bit for Derailed, which is Dayanira Tolima. Um, and uh, those are all people doing that. Are and they I coming think they're to doing, you? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I'll, I'll, I know them. Uh, I can't. I, I must have gone to more than one of them. Do you submit ideas, or are they just like, do what you want to do? Uh, to some extent, it, like it's do what you want to do, but we'll say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like with Huffington, nobody actually was reading it at all. Like you just yeah. write something and hit publish. Um, and that that was the end state of Huffington. At the beginning, they were looking at stuff, and then they just sort of like were like, "We don't care." That's kind of a good model in I a like way. It. I mean, <laughs> then it's you know, yeah. people either are drawn to it and read it all the way mm-hmm. through, or they don't. Yeah, but, I I don't think that I'm ever going to have that kind of freedom again at some place that's reputable. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but so I'm 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 glad to contribute to uh, to other sites to the extent that I have time to write art criticism these yeah. days. But uh, I really don't want to start, like, be responsible for creating something like that. How do you balance your time between doing that sort of stuff and then and then painting? Like, do you have a pretty fixed? I mean, you have, you have a kid. It it's, varies it's, a lot, and yeah. it, it's, it's, it's right. It's currently out of control, and I'm spread too thin. Um, like, I, I have I, I compulsively say yes to everything. Um, yeah, and uh, and that's I think that's a really good. Um, model when you're coming out of like a sort of like a uh, depressive 20 something position but like when you're like in your 40s and you're fully booked it's really a bad idea <laughs> uh, so i'm gonna have to start saying no to things and i, I just don't know which ones because i love everything that i'm doing yeah, yeah it's hard to to choose and and to limit yourself when yeah. uh you know, you, you never know where things are going to lead. Yeah. Also. So, I mean, you guys put a decent amount of work and energy into suggested donation. It's like an amazing podcast. But Thank you. Thank you. How do you manage to do it? It's <laughs> difficult because um, I've talked to Ted about all these ideas and Ted and vice versa. We've like switched so many ideas back and forth and we have these like really big ideas that we would love to do. Right. But finding the way... Particularly like series within done. the series and, oh, you know, yeah. we it's have all really this, difficult yeah. because of exactly the right. family thing and, and 
the art thing. I mean, it's all in. Yeah. And, and you know this, and mm-hmm. the artists that we talk to, it's all in. Like, there is no safety net under us. Well, and and you I think have it's to prioritize like, painting yeah. because you don't have a boss who's going to, you know, fire you if you're not in the office. And right. So you have, to, you have to be your own boss. You have to force yourself to be in the, you know, to show up in front of the easel mm-hmm. and you never get things done if, if you don't and, right and then you have all these other things pulling you in other in different directions it's yeah. always a struggle i think yeah but there's also a bit of frustration because of that the idea of having these big ideas mm-hmm. and if you don't do them mm-hmm. at times i mean that's kind of sad yeah like, here's an idea might not work mm-hmm. but it's an idea nonetheless yeah and i would love to see something go from an idea to something being reality and when yeah. you don't do that it's almost like this lost child yes <laughs> yeah and then like a, it will it's time will pass and you'll be like i'm not interested in i'm that not idea interested anymore. in it anymore yeah. yeah and that happens quite often actually yeah. it's like it was a good idea and now well you somebody can argue well if it was a good idea then it should be a good idea now but, but it's not how you're but life like is a different thing yeah. it's like a journey yeah one thing I wanted to mention about the art criticism is you're kind of a you're a rare person mm-hmm. to be an art critic and an artist. Most oh. art critics I've ever met or read of as we were never, discussing before the mics went on, right? Have never picked up a pencil. Right. Or paintbrush. Yeah. So I have or a paintbrush. So I always not to say that they aren't terrific writers or thoughtful, mm-hmm. but I'm always like yeah, but you don't paint, man. Yeah, you know, you know, like that, and it's really I'm not frustrating. Take you seriously, yeah, you don't paint. You mean nothing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Bystander. <laughs> Pedestrian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I um, uh, I it frustrates me when I read um criticism by people who don't paint. Um, and uh, I really hope that I'm able to bring. Uh, not only like a sort of like a density of analysis to the work, but a sympathy of analysis to it. Yeah. Uh, because I've been through a lot of those uncertainties or I've contended with a lot of those technical problems. Uh, and I know that it depresses my tendency to read meaning into things because I'm like, that's not a statement about this or that. That's just a problem painting a flower, yeah. you know? Um, but like, and I think that a lot of successful artists turn their problems into distinct parts of their aesthetic. Uh, but understanding where work comes from as a physical act in the context of one's experience, uh, making this thing, which is also a craft in addition to a meaningful object, uh, is um, I think that that's like something useful in criticism, and I wish there were more of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've read any of David Sally's criticism, but I he, haven't. He's quite a serious art critic, uh, and he uh, he really brings uh, not only uh, like a sense of intellectual responsibility in terms of his analysis of the work, but he also brings his experience painting, uh, which is nice to read. Well, I think that intellectual responsibility is a huge, like, important statement. Because I don't mm-hmm. see that a lot. No, uh, like there's like a tendency towards like the melodramatic comment, uh, as opposed to building up uh, a sort of like a an analytic framework within which you can justify your conclusions. I feel like if I want to make a claim about a work, I want to offer, I want to offer the path that I took to get there, so that the viewer can walk along with me, and when they get where I went, they can say yes or no. 
And if and even if they say no, the fact that they were able to go through that process means that they can go through their own process and engage with the work in a more involved way that makes the work more rewarding for them to look at. Right. Yeah. Or they like along the way they can dismiss certain ideas that you're assuming or Yeah. 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 And I'm 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 eager for them to do that. Like the act of dismissing that idea uh, will if they if they really want to do that, it will trigger in them uh, counter ideas that uh, that become their possessions. It helps them to own the art in a way that they, otherwise they couldn't. Yeah, yeah. It also creates a, an atmosphere of empathy, which mm-hmm. I think is like we were talking about the the uh, Leonardo da Vinci Salvador Mundi mm-hmm. that there was this unbelievable amount of reactionary tweets and instagrams and facebooks and i was reading through some of these just going like who who are these people who are now the authority of authorities (laughs) to be able to say these things like as if they know it right you've not said anything until this point and then other people who were critics Mm -hmm. would just come out there and just throw out these these uh statements of you know sort of just swarm you know smarmy little Mm -hmm. like statements i know that sounds like a but do you know what i mean like without saying a couple of names right that i was just like that's the dumbest like you're just trying to get a reaction from people because that's the it thing for the day in the world of art and it's a big deal all of a sudden yeah and you're trying to get attention so you're just gonna say stupid shit or back (laughs) to your point like it's easier Mm -hmm. to tear something down than to build it to stand for something yeah And, and i think it's a lot easier to just say no way. 450? Get out of here. It's not even real. <laughs> it's so much easier. It's right. so easy to be able I mean, to say that. Authenticating mm-hmm. a painting is a brutal it takes process. Ten, it took right. 10 years mm-hmm. for that. And I'm not even saying, oh, no, it's this or that. Right. But the thoughtfulness of... Yeah. of of uh, statements was just there was there it just seemed like it went out the window and it was all reactionary it was just like a free-for-all it was a free-for-all and because of social media everybody had a voice right and some and i know this sounds but some people just you don't you're not qualified to have a voice <laughs> right i'm sorry and most art critics probably would fall right. into that yeah. yeah i don't actually read all that much art criticism because i find it really tedious um <laughs> yeah <laughs> well by saying that yeah kind of <laughs> yeah um, but and also uh, there's another th- another thing about um, the sympathy or empathy, uh, which is that I won't write about art I don't like. Um, because Why not? I feel like no matter how indirectly I'm in competition with all of the art that I look at, uh, because I'm a an active professional artist, and it's unfair for me to be able to wield writing as a weapon to tear down. I mean, oh, okay. Uh, in a, if they can't do it too. Um, so well, they can do it like they will. Yeah, but they're not. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I recognize that like people do care what I say about artwork. So I'll only write about work that I like. I so don't you won't use your position for evil. I'll try. I try not to. <laughs> great power comes great responsibility. Right. Uh, so you don't think or have feel the need to let's say write about something you don't like because you think some good can come out of it. No, it's not worth it. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, definitely some good can come out of it, but relative to my life, um, uh, it's not worth the nightmare of like getting into it. Uh, like the, you know, obviously there are political concerns. Like you don't want to piss off the wrong people but that's not how it started the way it started was that i didn't want to hurt people um it's i just felt like it wasn't fair um because i could like you know there's some pieces that like i look at and i'd be like i could really tear the shit out of this yeah um, and i just it's not they're they're trying to make their work uh they didn't ask me 
to tell them what's wrong with it. Mm. Um, it would be, and even though I know that it would be a net positive contribution to the development of art overall to really understand what's wrong with bad art. That's not my job. Like I can't do everything. So, so your job is to figure out what's good about good art. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And, or to try to discover something interesting about art that I don't like. Um, and like, if I can do that, then I'll write about it too. Mm -hmm. And I've even been candid. I'll be like, I don't like this work, but like, this is something that's very fascinating about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that makes it precious. Mm. Yeah. And, Re- uh, recently you wrote something with um with vincent, uh, vincent desider oh yeah yeah who was on the podcast um that was this a podcast. great it was episode. a really good one he's yeah. a really thoughtful guy and he's he and he has so much to say and it's all interesting yeah um, yeah and a lot of it's funny super passionate <laughs> yeah. too yeah yeah um how did that come along okay uh so i had um a book of drawings uh that was coming out in 2016 and I had noticed on social media that he liked my drawings, so I asked him to write a forward for it. And he said, yeah, sure. So he wrote a really nice forward. Uh, and in the process of doing that, I was like, I'd love to interview you sometime, because I knew he was a really fascinating guy. He, I'd heard him speak a few times. And, uh, on this podcast. On this podcast. <laughs> um, look it up. It's worth listening <laughs> yeah. to. Uh, so that he was like, yeah, that would be great. Uh, and I didn't hear back from him about it. And then he had uh, his current solo show coming up at uh, Marlboro. And he was like, hey, you know, let's get together and do an interview for like an article, you know, to pipe the show. So I went up to his studio in Sleepy Hollow and uh, used my iPhone to record it. And I like we started talking and we wound up talking for like five hours. Uh, and it was a really good chat. Um, so then I came back and I was like, the first 20 minutes of this uh, is the article. Uh, but it seems like a horrible shame to leave those other, you know, four odd hours of of interview untranscribed, not share it with anybody. Because he got into, like, a lot of his favorite topics, like Neoplatonism, yeah. Oh, yeah. flashing <laughs> cement, <laughs> all over painting. Which yeah. I'm still, I'm not totally convinced about the archival <laughs> yeah, qualities I'm like, of no. flashing sure cement. That, no. <laughs> and he's like, no, I shall lack it. And you're like... <laughs> <laughs> I could Although, shellac I this mean, rabbit and yeah, it would still rot, man. It seemed to be standing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I got to see all the work from that show while he was finishing it up. Um, oh, in his studio. Yeah, in his studio. Uh, and I had just, it was a great conversation. I was like, it, it, was, it would be a crime not to share this with people. Like, I know that a lot of people love hearing what he has to say. Yeah, he's and it, so smart. Yeah, and, and it was a great summary of a lot of, like, the, you know, his greatest hits. Uh, so I pitched it to my publisher, and they said, yes, absolutely. And I pitched it to him, and he said, yeah, great. So we did a book of the rest of it. Um, and uh, it took me, like, five weeks to transcribe it. And I know you can hire a transcription service, but, like, the audio wasn't that great. He's using a lot of really esoteric words. Right, yeah. Uh, and I just, I also, inter- I wanted to be the one making the editorial decisions about how to interpret uh, ums and uhs and right. commas mm-hmm. and semicolons. Uh, so I wrote it all down and, uh, well, also as a fan, I mean, it's fun to, to go mean, over it again. Exactly. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So I had a really good time doing that and, uh, we are waiting on hard copies of the book. Is That's that your first published standalone, um, piece? Uh, well, there's the book of drawings. That's right. The book of drawings. Yeah. Which there's a copy over there. You can take Nudes. a look later. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. 
But as far as like uh, literature, uh, as far as, like as a te- as a book yes, of text, as a text, yeah, and it's mostly him. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I will yeah, book zero point five. What's it called? Uh, uh, Theseus, which is the title of the show, correct? It, I think it's the original title of the show. I think they just changed it to Recent Paintings or something. Huh. But it could be. <laughs> it could still be called Theseus. I don't know. Uh, the painting's called Theseus, uh, like the the big painting in the show. And, and that was the which painting was that? What was, it was the, all the figures all the figures and bugs and right. things uh covering the whole canvas in the middle of the gallery and then theseus 2 and theseus 3 which are much more abstract are on either side of it and they seem like they're almost i mean they're they're abstract paintings those yeah. two but they seem like they're based compositionally on the original painting yeah yeah so we talked a lot about his process moving from uh theseus to theseus 2 and 3 and there's a destroy theseus also that he painted in china and just wrecked or didn't bring back or something oh, oh, too much flashing cement <laughs> <laughs> and that's something you you kind of go back and forth or bounce back and forth a bit between representational painting and abstraction don't a you? little bit yeah um i uh it's uh my my abstraction i feel like the kind of abstraction that really speaks to me and i think that he it does that in theseus too quite a lot uh, which is why I respond most. That's the like black and white. The Theseus is a full color, fully rendered figurative painting. Theseus two crawling with figures. Crawling I mean, with figures. It's just full of figures. Yeah. Um, and These- there's almost no empty space. No, and it, it's it, it's it's overpowering. Right. Um, and it, it's very disorienting because you can't establish a ground. It's all figure. Right. Um, and then uh, Theseus two is sort of like an abstracted version of that in black and white. Uh, and so there's a real sense of broken statuary, uh, even though you can't quite name what body parts you're looking at. Uh-huh. And then Theseus three is sort of like Theseus two, but photo inverted. And it's a yeah. synthetic photo inversion. He just made it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, but Theseus two, the like black and white broken statuary one really blew me away. And I feel like it exemplifies uh, the thing about abstraction that I'm most excited about, uh, which is complete in the moment uh response to the paint as a physical phenomenon uh so that you just like you have the emotional brush stroke like i don't know i don't have emotional brush strokes or very rarely like once or twice in a painting i'm like (laughs) i felt (laughs) that and then a tear wells up (laughs) yeah Yeah, like 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 in a movie about van gogh or something um and and i and like it's not something that like the artists i hang out with engage in very much um, but it's something that if I were to really devote myself to abstraction, uh, would be what I would be chiefly interested in accessing. Um, and I think he accesses it very profoundly all over that painting. Um, and so there's to some extent like these black and these very dark paintings here, that's like the ninth of a series that no one's seen, uh, do have that in person, uh, in the moment selectiveness, Mm-hmm. to them um which and it's less analytic i was talking with um uh inca essenhai has something similar to that in her outlook on painting like she believes that painting that you should really only paint what makes you happy to paint and i'm re- i'm i'm oversimplifying her position but she came in here one time and was looking at my work and she was like you were you you were excited to paint this this you painted because you had to finish the painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell the difference. I really only think you should be doing the stuff you're excited to paint. And I think that that's... that's Is she right? If I could figure out how to leave out the boring parts, I would. <laughs> like, I'm not into 
just coloring it in because it needs to get done. So I've increasingly tried to eliminate the things I don't care about. Including color? To some extent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, like, this is going to have color, a la this. But, like, this this palette here is what I'm going to be working with for my next major body of work. Mm. And that is Burnt Umber, Payne's Gray, Titanium White, and Portland Cool Gray. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Because I really like that kind of, like, warm gray mm-hmm. uh i don't care that much about the restricted values i don't care that much about the fact that it doesn't really have color i'm not i'm a, I'm a form guy like color is very difficult for me and it's not intuitive and sometimes i'm like man i need color but uh a lot of times i'm like i really want form mm-hmm. um so that's why there's so much form in my work and a relatively less use of uh color as an intuitive emotional element like it's an often an analytic emotional element where like i thought it through and made a decision that purple is really where i want to be in this painting um but i'm not just like ooh, today i feel purple (laughs) um and uh but like i feel like if you look at um uh inca essenheim's work there's a strong sense of the ecstatic throughout a lot of it and i think that she really takes seriously this idea that like every moment should be exciting and I, I'm, I'm sure it's not that way for her because it can't be that way for everyone. You're not like falling in love for the first time all the time. With every brush show. Yeah. But you can certainly make that a dominant mode of practice. Well, you can always try, right? Yeah. I mean, I think with every painting, you mm-hmm. always acknowledge the flaws, but you're trying, you're reaching for something mm-hmm. that's impossible. And I, I think that that's part of what's so exciting about painting is that you, there's always a road ahead because you're never going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, but you—I mean—it doesn't mean that you don't stop trying. And each time you get closer, it feels like a incredible feeling, a great success. Yeah, the, the, those are breakthroughs, and they're not even necessarily visible to other people. Like, <laughs> you know, you're like, "Oh, I'm doing so much better," and they're like, "It looks like your last day." <laughs> <laughs> but it makes it's a difference so to you. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember. Did you write a um, an essay or something on post-contemporaryism? Yes, I did. Uh, Graydon asked me to do that. Graydon Parrish. When he, Graydon yeah. Parrish asked me to write up um, some thoughts on it uh, when um, when he was trying to get that started. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote an extraordinarily long essay about it for Huffington. Uh, it's probably the longest thing I ever wrote for them. And it was also uh, like the most polarized thing that I ever wrote. Mm. Um, and, you know, Graydon really likes to draw a line between what he's interested in Mm -hmm. and what he dismisses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, he's very charismatic. So he's extremely persuasive. (laughs) Uh, I, in certain moods, I can totally buy into this and I really want this to succeed. Like I thought of all of the attempts to movement eyes, figurative painting that I've seen, it had the highest chance of success. Yeah. Um, So I was like, you know what? I'm willing to, I'm willing to commit to to being one-sided here. Uh, so I wrote a really ambitious essay about it, which I don't think anyone read. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in it, well, because it was a Huffington Post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they didn't blink it or anything. Um, and uh, and then that was that. I it's, I think parts of the essay are pretty good. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then I don't know what's become of post-contemporary since then. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, like anything else, I think it's devolved into factionalism and, and I don't, I don't know <laughs> bitter recriminations it's devolved into anything it's just you know it's out the idea of putting it out mm-hmm. there yeah and see if see what happens i yeah. mean i think the the i'm not gonna say it's something that's like oh it's a brave movement because 
I, I, I reserve the idea of brave for a lot of other things, but the idea right, that you yeah. would take the time out and write something, put it out there mm-hmm. with, you know, whether it was, you know, Graydon's influence or mm-hmm. just to put it out there to see what happens, yeah. I think is something as artists mm-hmm. that is important at right. times to be like, do it. Yeah. see what happens well, especially so and do it well yeah. say, which is like this is a group that i believe in or this i is, still believe in it i, I, w- I in wish it. that it would it would be nice to for it to see some stuff happening again mm-hmm. like i haven't heard about it in a while because like that facebook group just like turned into like nasty fighting and bumped me out and i was yeah, like i don't want to again think it, about this right now it's a facebook yeah. group right and that's not the right place no. you know i think it could, there's maybe some good stuff can happen in social media but social media is not the right place at, mm. for a lot of things but what, what would be a good idea for i her? don't know yeah you know i'd have like, to sit and really think that about website that. that you're going to start to replace <laughs> the huffington post exactly <laughs> no i think yeah. probably like getting together and having some drinks every once in a while which would be a would better help idea because yeah. you hear about and mm-hmm. even in the 20th century mm-hmm. in modern art movement that it was a lot of them getting together and, and having getting a drink. in, and getting in drinks Get and getting into and getting fights, fights. Yeah. you, yeah. you know? gotta yeah. throw down you can't you, you can't gotta just throw down drinks. yeah you gotta throw down a la like yeah. cedar tavern or something like <laughs> right. that yeah. in New if you York don't leave with bruises it's not art <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not very fun anyway yeah. uh, <laughs> but the idea of where does it where is the right place I would like to think the right places on the gallery and museum walls would right. be a good place. Sure. Especially if it could be, if we can fast track it to the museum walls mm-hmm. because, um, you know, it's not like we're beginners. Right. Like we've put in the time. It would be really great to see the people like, um, see that there is something special. Right. And authentic mm-hmm. there and say that, yeah, the museums should be opening their eyes to people willing to, um, everything into something no, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean no. have, are, are you have you guys been keeping up with um uh the wowsow museum of contemporary art no what is this, this the is wild style wowsow a wowsow i don't know how to pronounce it exactly it's wowsow wisconsin um there's a guy named david hummer who has put a uh, many years into opening a contemporary art museum yeah. in like a small town in wisconsin um his first uh the first show was a juried show that Alyssa monks juried um i had a uh, painting in it I'm really proud of that. Um, and they are very figurative friendly. Um, they're doing a, they're working with poets and artists on a painting the figure now show coming up later this year or early next year. They've got another, you know, national jury show next year. I don't know what their prospects are as a museum, but it's a museum and he's doing his best. And that's wow. the most similar to what we've all been talking about all this time that yeah. I've ever heard of. Uh, and he's a he seems like a very sincere, very hardworking guy, and the space looks nice. So I'll and they're get committed. There is it like a f- commitment? To, it sounds like to somewhat to figurative. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, it's, a, it's got a very figurative orientation so far. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I was actually wanted to talk a little bit about that because mm-hmm. you're committed to painting mm-hmm. the nude, right? Which is a, a I think it's um it's hard to find a place for that in contemporary life. Right. I mean, we don't we don't have a whole lot of nudity around us. Right. And you know, if it is, it's pornography. Right. And even if it's not pornography, a lot of it gets branded as mm-hmm. pornography. And right. it's it's. I mean, that speaks to how out of place mm-hmm. nudity is in culturally right. in our society. And right. I'm curious, you know, a what draws you to this mm-hmm. kind of very unloved corner of the art world and right. be your your experience with people reacting to it uh, either either pro or con huh 
Um, what draws me to it? I mean, it seems like it's the most fundamental subject. Uh, it's. I think it's the most beautiful subject. I think that there is nothing uh, more elegant and uh, perfectly designed than the human machine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's endlessly complex, endlessly fascinating, and it's imbued with meaning and grace. And uh, certainly to us, right? Yeah, I mean, but we're as, other I, human as human beings. Like you, can, you, you, we have an uh, extraordinarily dense neural. Uh, um, uh, complex designed specifically for understanding the human body and the human face. Um, there, there's, there's a, there's, a, if you're talking about representation and when I'm talking about art, ultimately I'm probably talking about representation. Uh, there's a short list of things that we have evolved to have a very profound relationship with, uh, landscapes, uh, the figure face. Um, and then after that still lives. And then after that, it built up to history painting. Like the solutions to what our brains are adapted to look at were discovered a long time ago intuitively. And over time, science has filled in uh, the mystery of it to explain in a practical sense, but not a spiritual sense, why these things are meaningful to us. Uh, The fact remains that we respond to those more readily and more strongly and more profoundly than we do to any other subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are people who feel naturally drawn to the landscape uh, and they do profound work with the inner soulfulness of uh, what we see when we look out at nature. Um, I happen to be extraordinarily strongly attached to the figure. Um, I don't see any reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh primarily the female figure too yeah i mean and you do some, both yeah but, i do yeah. both i uh i like women more uh somebody asked jeff farber <laughs> who does uh who's also figurative they were like so why 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 the female dude and he was like hormones <laughs> 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 and like i'm not gonna say that that's not the answer uh it may well be the answer uh it's also possible um and more self-flattering that you take what you're made of as a person and you make it transcendent um, so that you take the fact that your hormones say this is the most interesting thing in the world. Uh, and then you convert that into something meaningful because it's the thing that you will be most profoundly moved by anyway. So you might as well redeem it. So you're drawn to it first and foremost, just kind of intuitively. And mm-hmm. then you construct some rationale around yeah. that. Yeah, but it's it's not or it's, meaning. It's, it's not rather. an excuse. It's a, a sort of a transmogrification. Um, and I, I actually, I have to give a talk, uh, a preview of a talk. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm on Rob Zeller's drawing panel. Um, okay. Right. And, uh, and he was like, okay, I want you to talk about muses, uh, in drawing. And the thing that came to mind immediately was, um, Botticelli's drawings of, uh, Simonetta Vespucci, who was dead when he was drawing them. Um, but, uh, but he had like, he, he, when he was young, he knew this woman, he was nuts about her. Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible none of this really happened, but it's a good story. Um, and uh, and then she died, and he was like, she was the paragon of, of beauty and virtue. I'm just going to spend the rest of my life making pictures of her. Mm-hmm. Not because he was going to get anywhere with her because she's dead in the ground, <laughs> but because the what she activated in him as a human being was the best thing he had to offer. So he kept on making images because that was the most meaningful thing in the world to him. Mm-hmm. So he uh, illustrated the Divine Comedy with her as Beatrice. Beatrice herself was um, had an exactly parallel relationship with Dante. She died young, uh, early in Dante's life. 
Uh, and he used her as a stand-in for everything that was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she appears in Vita Nova and uh, the Divine Comedy. It's an example of taking the rude materials that we're made from and the chance experiences of our lives and uh, and refining and refining and refining them until something meaningful and communicative comes out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about. I'm also going to talk about um, that Michelangelo drawing of that really pretty young nobleman in that show, which I thought was very moving. You mean the... Um, What's the, the finish? Yeah, the kind of finished drawing yeah. that was like one yeah. of the few finished ones there. Yeah, it's like and the one old... of a few portraits, yeah. portraits that seems yeah. to be of someone in particular. He used yeah. to hate trying to get any likeness or something he was oh, like, really? likenesses is, is like really bugged him he's like it's unnecessary you, you can see that yeah yeah it's unnecessary to get like it's so interesting that he chooses the like the male torso is just the thing that he's fat like you see in his drawings and his studies right how you know he, he does sometimes have a, a a face on you know on on the head right he does get into hands and and feet as details but the the focus is just it's the torso. He mm-hmm. was just absolutely mesmerized by yeah. that yeah. in particular, and you see him just focusing in on on just that. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's that's and that the locus of meaning too. for him. What yeah. it yeah. might have been hormones too. I him. would imagine so. <laughs> um, and uh, but and he that's the one thing that he can really pay attention to, and uh, and he makes it mean everything. Um, yeah. and uh, so. Uh, that's uh you know that's what's going on with me and it's a it's a tough sell because <laughs> yeah. nobody wants to put it up in the living room well that's I, a difficult right i yeah. mean it's 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 hard for you know it's a lot easier you know painting the ocean i think mm-hmm. it's a, a much easier for somebody to put that up on the wall mm-hmm. and i think with Damn anything it, that's, that's fair <laughs> with anything that's representational already there's a commitment to something and yeah. so that's that's tough it's actually i think with. i think it's tougher to sell portraits because people are like why do i want to put up a picture of someone who i don't know on my right wall. a nude there's yeah. almost a, a way to kind of abstract that yeah. and and it's not necessarily an individual right. but it's a you know and uh, yeah, yeah with a portrait that might be you're right yeah it's totally i worry fucked. i worry a How lot about hang a, a picture of somebody <laughs> you don't know on right? your wall just because yeah. it was painted well well i worry a lot about um some of the art we love especially now in contemporary mm-hmm work being made is the idea of objectifying things uh-huh so many people throw that word around right that right. person's objectifying it. they're like yeah culturally you know all and and it's yeah it, and it's it's you're you're it's a it's a, it's a hard <laughs> thing to talk about and right i do worry about that because oh, yeah. because just, that's it's very easy for people to just not get it and say this is what you're doing don't tell me what i'm doing i know what i'm doing right yeah i there i haven't okay so there are a few reasons that i worry about that less first of all i haven't had to like directly have someone shouting at me about it good so have you no okay because i i don't know who has like poor um what's her name um what is her name dana Schatz was she Mm. the one who did the emmett till painting that like she got in a firestorm over it for the Whitney. Yes, and then she they had to take it down, or she took it down, or something like that. Yeah. Yes, poor woman. Yeah, that sounds. They, awful. Well, they, it was cultural appropriation. Yeah, uh, I would. Admittedly, she probably should have known she was walking into that, doing that. Re- but no, but, like well, really. Well, no, I mean, like if you can read the landscape and be like, politically, this would be a bad move. On okay, part. fair enough. Uh, but. God, what a horrible experience I'm sure that was. I can't imagine. I can't imagine you trying to do something and then having people 
telling you you can't do that. Yeah, telling that you it's wrong, wrong to yeah. do that. Yeah. When hopefully I don't know that I don't know her. I don't know the mm-hmm. painting. But the idea is like I'm going to go ahead and hopefully think that her intentions weren't wrong. That her intentions were to do something hopefully in, inspirational. I don't even care. Like I, you know, there's David Cronenberg had a book uh, about. I think it was the title of his book was Everything Is Permitted. Uh, it was about the making of Naked Launch. Yeah. Uh, I think I. I yeah, think I, I, th- had, I think oh, I read that in college. <laughs> I didn't read it. Um, I just thought it was a cool title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, I feel like I, I sort of like took that as like my idea about art. Like everything is permitted, um, and I don't think that art necessarily has to serve a redeeming or positive social value. Like yeah. I think there's plenty of room for art that's like sure. nihilistic and destructive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like it, you know, just art that is antisocial, art that is cruel, um, art that uh, art that's mean. Um, and there's no, there's no, you shouldn't do that in art. Uh, there's only art. Um, and so I feel like no matter what her intentions were and what she accomplished, uh, the only criticism is whether it's good or bad art, uh, and not whether it's moral. Um, Mm. so the, and so I've, uh, first of all, I've never been shouted at by somebody telling me I'm objectifying anybody. And second of all, the entire doctrine of the evils of objectification strikes me as part and parcel or parallel in nature with uh the sort of like orthodox contemporaryism of uh of contemporary art it's an illusion it'll pass uh like in i think that in time people will say that's an interesting idea it's not the only idea it's certainly a lot of people felt constrained to work within the guidelines of that idea for a long time and some interesting work was done but now that idea is just one of many ideas and it's an historical idea that no longer controls us mm-hmm. uh, so you know i've taken a very small amount of flack for what i'm doing and i'm like yeah in 75 years no one's going to care what you have to say <laughs> <laughs> and the work will still be here yeah good point yeah. Do you, <laughs> I mean, do, so you don't you don't that's not a criticism that you ask yourself and and oh no i i, I actually yourself to i, I totally kind of do confront. like i'm so not a little voice not in your head sometimes saying what am you. i just is this just porn yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh you mostly i don't think it is <laughs> every once in a while i'm like and i i uh you know to soften some more edges right. well uh, people will be like oh it's erotic and i'm like i don't know i don't have an erotic response to it in the sense that you're thinking um i'm glad you see it that way but it's erotic uh, are to you? you would you be <laughs> The what would you be glad to if somebody was like i mean if if you're making the art uh-huh and you're not finding erotic content are you happy I, to have other people finding erotic content in it? Yeah, yeah. I just, if it like, I like people to have any response at all. <laughs> um, just look. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And also, if they see that, then that it succeeds on that level. Right. Um, and that's not nothing. Um, like to you know, I don't. I mean, I never really thought about it. I just intuitively took it as a compliment. I could be wrong mm-hmm. now that you mention it. <laughs> But um, but it doesn't bother me. Which right. It's not where I'm coming from. And, right. uh, and like, you know, I think that that would be kind of a boring way to make work. Mm-hmm. Like, if it, you know, I want, uh, I don't know, I want my work to be about people and not about tools. So, yeah. yeah. How do you choose your models? Uh, well, I'm, I tend to meet models uh, at Spring Studios uh, oh, through yeah. life drawing. So you go Spring there periodically. Still there? It's out on Broom Street now. Oh. Uh, so it's uh, not on Minerva. Spring. Minerva's Spring still running it. Spring She's like there? eighty. Wow. Yeah, uh, she's still running it. 
it's the space is not as big as it was and it's yeah. a little flat so it's kind of tough for getting good lines to the models but, but that's um, a life drawing institution yeah it that is Spring it's Street amazing Street. it's been around forever i've uh yeah and I, I don't think that i've never seen anything else like it um and so I'm, I'm nuts about Spring Street. I meet most of my models there. Mm. Uh, if you look at somebody for like, I, my ideal situation is that I'll have drawn somebody like two or three times before I hire them because, um, you know, once you've spent like six, nine hours looking at somebody, you kind of know them, even if you haven't mm, yeah. talked with them. Like you just, you've observed what they're thinking about, how they're feeling, uh, how they, you know, what kind of a person they are and then if it looks like they're interesting maybe you hire them and draw them privately and, if, and like i talk a lot with the models when i'm painting mm-hmm. uh so i really need to be able to sustain a very long-term conversation with somebody what, what makes them interesting to you though is it like uh, depends on the person yeah because yeah, like, i mean i find often mm-hmm. with models or working wanting to work with models i i want to work with people who are engaged in being model like that they mm-hmm. they're not bored by it that they're not uh that they show up on time i mean right. like very mundane concerns become incredibly important if you're relying on this person for i actually i don't care that much about those things oh really yeah like um, i mean in my experience like a lot of models are late um mm. i do need them to like you know take a pose and stay more or less in it but like the more experience you get the more like you they can wiggle around a bit and it's not a problem yeah um but like i absolutely need them to be an interesting conversationalist because <laughs> i'm like spending a lot of time in the studio with them i talk while i paint um so are you able to do the like talk and concentrate on your work at the same time that's yeah. sort of dual brain thing yeah uh, I can't talk about painting while I'm painting because then I get like crosstalk in my brain and I forget what I'm doing. But I can talk about anything else. Like, why are you painting a landscape? Ah, oh, we're talking about landscape painting. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so I, um, you know, I have really good conversations with models. I don't care what they're interested in as long as they're like interested in something and they're interesting about it. Have you learned a lot from these random models who come in where you're like, wow, that's, that was an engaging, crazy conversation yeah. that I've never had before. Yeah. Like, like with any friend, it's like, like going I, to a bar and talking to just like, I mean, <laughs> ultimately you're talking with friends. Um, like I'm, I'm really good friends with a number of my models. Um, uh, there was there was one that you drew a lot. I think Patty Watwood would use Leah. her too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Leah. Up the there, blue yeah. paintings are Leah. Yeah. You did a whole show of Leah, like, right? Yeah, so I did. Series. Yeah, and in fact, uh, she's a doula, so she was there when uh, when oh, our wow. son was born. Oh like, wow! Because like she, we're we're both friends with her. So uh, she's like part of the family. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, <laughs> we, we're we're nuts about her. Her boyfriend's great. He plays with the magnetic fields. Um, I guess that doesn't mean anything to you, but I thought they were awesome when I was in college. They still play. Uh, he tours with them. They were just in like Australia or someplace. Um, uh, so yeah, we're very close with her. So when you wanted to, you did a series with her. Did you want to work with her because you liked her so much or because she was available or yeah, all the above? Uh, sort of all of the above. Like um, I, to me, she looked like uh, a, um, uh, a Buddha sculpture from the Hellenistic period uh-huh. from like Gandhara or someplace. Uh, and so I just like, I thought she was great to draw and paint. And also she's like a really cool person that I felt very comfortable spending a lot of time with. Yeah. Um, did you conceive of like a theme before or did it just sort of evolve from working with her? No. The, okay. So the first one, what happened? Oh, the blue paintings. Um, actually what happened was, uh, I had done a profile, a, pro, a painting of her in profile, 
and it wasn't a very good painting. Um, and then Patty did one of her, pa- Patricia Watwood mm-hmm. did a painting of her in profile and it was a really good painting. And I was like, how come hers is so much better apart from she's better at painting? And then I realized that like she had also figured out a better angle. And I was like, well, I'm going to steal that angle. <laughs> so then I did uh, the first of the um, Blue Leah paintings, which was like in profile using Patty's angle. And I really liked that set of aesthetic constraints, which was like this very cold light, uh, Leah alone in a blue, dark blue space so much that I did a second one. And then I was like, I never think in series. I could do <laughs> these all day long. So then I spent like two years doing paintings of her like wow. in blue, like doing these blue paintings. And that was what that show was. So that was how that started. And then wow. I just like really enjoyed doing them. So I did more of them. Do you think you'll do that again as far as maybe focusing? If you ha- if you happen to come across somebody that was super engaging and mm-hmm. kind of checked off all those things yeah. that I would do I would do that you again. Would do that again. Yeah. Uh I'm focusing more on uh some narrative paintings next cuz um mm. the gallery I'm showing with was like could you do like some narrative paintings where they're wearing <laughs> something? What gallery is this? Uh Jen Singer Gallery. Where are they? Uh well she's exclusively online right now. She was in Gramercy Park. Uh the lease was up. Uh she was looking around New York City for a space, but then she got married and moved to London. Mm. So as far as I know, she's looking for a space in London. She's considering doing pop-up shows in the US. And uh, when she wants to show work in any kind of like a fancy way, she does it on like artsy. Mm. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And is that what you're going to be working on or currently working on? Or is it what's coming? Okay. So next up, uh, there's a drawing show with her on artsy, which okay. will uh, be mostly drawings of Menu, who's in that tall painting. There, yeah. Who uh, I think is fantastic. And unfortunately, she lives in like England or Belgium or someplace. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I have to work from photographs with her. Yeah. Uh, she comes back every year and a half or so, and we work together a lot, and I shoot more reference, and then she goes away again. And she's a dancer, which is why she looks like that. Yeah. Uh, she's been dancing like seven hours a day her whole life. Um, and then uh, I'm also working on some paintings of her, which I don't know where they're going to go, but I just like painting her, and it always works out well. Um, and also I'm going to be doing the... Uh, like narrative paintings, which are going to uh, be loosely related to the uh, multi-room compositions in Giotto. Um, like, you know, like he'll have like a painting where there's like, you can see three rooms oh, in the yeah, building, yeah, yeah. and there's like an angel over there and there's some yeah. people doing something over here and then there's a porch and there's some other people on the porch. And like, I've always been fascinated by that. And to me, uh, and like the capacity of a painting to sequentially tell a story like that uh and it's related for me to storyboarding Mm -hmm. uh comic books and also uh the very somebody described this once uh as democratic uh they were talking about uh, lucino visconti's movie the leopard uh and there are all these incredibly deep space compositions in the leopard where there's stuff happening in the foreground middle ground background all these different things, the viewer has to decide what they're looking at. It's all part of one unified visual composition, but it's incredibly complex. And it's telling you a complex story uh, in every single shot. Uh, and that's fascinating. Um, Meaning you can rewind, oh, you can see, watch the movie again yeah. and see a completely different movie. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's not like this like stupid multi-panel thing. It's just like these like integrated, organic, deep compositions. When you see that a bit in Orson Welles and Quentin Tarantino as well. Yeah. Do you feel like you're taking your experience in the past of being a movie maker and starting to, to now apply it to your art because you're becoming a, a more mature artist? Yes. And as a um, storyteller. Yeah, I'm 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 
I have been looking for a way to be more ambitious for the past year or so. Uh, cause I was like, like I, I painted this a year ago, the, the tall nude over there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's really everything that I've been trying to do all these years. Uh, and now that I've demonstrated to myself that I can do it and that I can produce something that has integrity in this mode, I really need to tackle something else yeah or something harder and so i've been looking at the most ambitious contemporary paintings that are roughly comparable with things that i'm interested in for like a year and just thinking it over i've had a lot of trouble painting for the past year because i didn't know what i wanted to do um and then like in the past few months i've like started to like have an idea crystallize and i'm moving toward like i've got my first session with a model working towards this uh like essentially multi-panel narrative uh concept uh early in february mm. so hopefully i won't be totally embarrassed a year from now and be <laughs> like you know what i couldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> remember that conversation we had a while yeah, back those sucked <laughs> <laughs> back to the nudes <laughs> i wasn't that good so yeah. that's what you have coming down the the road as far as shows go meaning yeah. in the in the, in the foreseeable in the future couple years yeah 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 all right. Well, I think that's probably. Well, is how do me, people find you? Yeah. How, find your work like online or okay. You know? Um, I I probably the best current archive of my work, which is mostly drawings, is at Instagram, mm-hmm. which is yeah. uh, Instagram dot com slash Daniel Maidman. Daniel Maidman. Um, uh, you, you can uh, everything I post on Facebook is public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a website, uh, Daniel dot com. However. Uh, who I fatally websites. what I said who updates websites. right I let the PHP and the WordPress get out of sync like three years ago and I can't <laughs> actually access the website so <laughs> it ends in 2015 or so <laughs> the design is kind of dusty looking yeah that's what happens with websites yeah does that do you guys update your website no I haven't updated my website in a really long time I think mine Oopsie. stopped around the same time 2015 like, something eh, like that yeah the web <laughs> <laughs> right yeah actually I had, I had one more question because we were talking about the Vincent Desiderio book yeah do you think in the future you would um, be interested in writing, I, I don't want to say biographies on living artists, but more or less um, books around uh, the idea. Or not, a journey. <laughs> <laughs> the idea. By Daniel <laughs> Or writing books on art, like full full books on the idea, like a, 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 whether I've, it's a, a, a specific person or a movement or something I've like that. I've thought about it. Then there's... there. Uh, it's a time problem. Here, yeah. I I'll blow this idea because I like this idea so much that if someone else gets to it no, first, no, you're gonna okay. I'm good with we'll that. trademark it right now. Okay, <laughs> uh, but um, I uh, I know a lot of um, like young female artists who have a lot of anxiety about having kids and what that will mean in terms of their work, mm. and I also know a lot of female artists who are successful who have kids. And I think that it would be awesome to do a book of interviews with female artists who are both succeeding and not succeeding, uh, who have kids, and talk about how being a parent and a mother has impacted their ability to get their work done and Mm -hmm. what it's meant in terms of their work. Um, So that's been on the back burner forever, Mm -hmm. because I think that would be a really cool book. Um, And I hate to see like people who might be very happy as parents not become parents because they're scared of not being able to make art anymore. I think you can make art. I think it's hard. Um, but I'd love to have a book of like, you know, people sharing their experiences of what they had to do in order to either uh, continue their career or what uh, choices they made that wound up with them not continuing their career once they had kids. Mm-hmm. So 
that, yeah, it's a that that's a high priority if I ever did any other it's a books. very common you know because of our us being in this this very small world mm-hmm. and we all kind of know each other it's a very common uh, concern yeah that we've I've come across to our colleagues yeah and uh and, and it it's even a tough thing to make it work I mean I, work. I think it would probably be inspiring for people to hear from those mm-hmm. women who are able to make it work yeah which is I mean it's it's yeah. really challenging and I know that like you you're probably looking at taking a few years off, um, but you also, also there's a road back, and the children inform the work in ways that's you know often very productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if there's any book publishers who listen to this fine um, oh, I've podcast, got a, I've got a publisher for it. Oh, you yeah, do? Yeah, no. Uh, Griffith Moon is terrific. They uh, oh wow. They did my drawing book. They did the Desiderio book. They are totally interested in that. Hmm. Um, Where do I people j- find the the books? Both your nudes book and the Desiderio book. Uh, is it just? I think it's GriffithMoon.com, or you can go on Amazon. Uh, the Desiderio book isn't on Amazon yet. Uh, my book is, um, and also the Griffith Moon website. Okay. So if they, it's I, it's either GriffithMoon.com, or if it's not GriffithMoon.com, they got to Google GriffithMoon publishing. Yeah. Got yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but they they do beautiful work, and uh, so that's that that's. That's a possibility. That's a great idea. Oh, thanks. I think you yeah. should do it. Awesome. And you heard it here. <laughs> or first. somebody should do it. <laughs> yeah. If you want to do it, go ahead. Do please. You have, you, well, you said that before we started this yeah. podcast. And then when I looked down at the uh, the time, we've been, been talking for a while. <laughs> it goes very quickly. Wow. Oh, it's just it Ted, do you have any workshops or anything coming up? Don't you have something at the GCA? I, it's not worth talking about because by the time we actually get the podcast out, they're done. Good point. Oh, <laughs> man. Look for his po- workshops. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Daniel, do thank you, you so much. I do. Yeah, I do teach. Awesome. It's been hard because I've been kind of back and forth between here and Dallas, and so I've been kind of just up in the air. You guys are probably both great teachers, I would bet. We try. Yeah. We kind of take it seriously. So like all of our, uh, all of us, you know, right. all, that's why we all kind of get along. We realize the uh, the time commitment, the struggle, everything that it takes to not only make paintings, but to teach and be kind of a living artist is is a lot harder than I think we all realize it was. Being a dead artist would be so much easier. <laughs> be a little much harder. Yeah. All your troubles are over. <laughs> so I do yeah. enjoy it, and it's it's great. I learn a lot from it myself, yeah. you know? Yeah. I yeah. love, like, it's exhausting because you look so at the, you're you're like you've got 10 students and you're looking at all of their work and responding to each the each of the students custom work. it's like a customized response yeah, trying to, to think person. of what like metaphors are going to resonate with one person yeah. versus another and yeah and it's completely students have completely different things that are helpful to them yeah like you can talk to somebody about line you talk to somebody else about form because like they re, you can tell from their work what they respond to yeah yeah, yeah. I can shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we should get you back on the podcast at some point. Oh, I'd thanks. love to have you back and just sort of continue the conversation. I know. That's sure. I feel like we're scratching the surface. I, I, oh. I really, I definitely feel like it, it, there's a lot more to talk about. Great. So well, in the future, we should, yeah. we should just get you back on. So um, thanks, so thanks so much, much yeah, for taking the time so out and invite, inviting us over to your studio. It is a huge pleasure having you over. Of course. Awesome. Thanks. All right, guys. All right. Thank, thanks.